Welcome to another episode of Two Guys, One Topic. I'm Ollie. And I'm Liam. And for those that don't know, or if we've got anybody new listening this week, uh, we, we take a topic each week that we know next to nothing about, and we give ourselves just a week to read and research all about it. The idea being that we do the hard work and then we share what we feel are the most important pieces of information with you. Exactly. Slight disclaimer. This has been a bit harder work this week <laughs> than some. <laughs> and just so people know, we're not experts in anything that we talk about on the pod. This is just a summary of our findings. But hopefully, by sharing some knowledge with you, we can all learn a little bit more about a whole lot of things. Yeah, exactly. So let's crack on with this week's rather complicated topic. Turns out, Albert Einstein. Oi, does this rank, uh, as far as difficulty, does this rank with like cryptocurrency and NFTs as far as <laughs> things yeah. pretty hard to get your head around? And um, for me, Greek mythology, because I still can't get my head around that. But <laughs> yeah, this one is yeah up there with cryptocurrency and NFTs and everything as well. Really interesting topic to get into. I think one of the things that I've quickly learned this week is that my brain isn't built to be a theoretical uh, scientist, to be a, to be a theoretical physicist at all. Yeah, that's true. I do, you know what I've learned? I messaged you. I can't believe that Albert Einstein was around in like the 1900s. I was sure that we'd have to go back in time, like to the 1700s or something. <laughs> 1900s. <laughs> so go on then, like, like we always like to do. What did you know about Einstein before the start of this research? I didn't really know. I knew the picture. I know. Can you picture him? He's got that fuzzy hair. Yeah. And he has his tongue sticking out in that yeah. famous picture yeah. of him, which turns out that picture is really famous. And that's probably why I know it. Um, e equals MC squared. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of those things probably lots of people know, no idea what it really is. But like, I thought it's really, when we were thinking about a famous person to do, we were like, let's just, you know, most famous people of all time or influential people. And like, He's like on the top 10 list, Albert yeah. Einstein. But until this week, I couldn't really tell you why or what it was he <laughs> no. actually did. He's a scientist, but what did he science? Exactly. Yeah, a scientist and a name that's then become synonymous with somebody being super bright or super smart. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah, like, cool. you're like Einstein or just saying, you know, that, that's, that's what's been come to be known as a term, hasn't it? But yeah, super interesting topic and a great one to get into. Yeah, so let's I should start with who was Albert Einstein then? Have you got like a nutshell little two sentences? Uh, yeah, he, he was a scientist that is really well known for the equation that you just said there, E equals MC squared. And he came up with a few other theories that we'll get onto, which is something called special relativity and general relativity theories. And that he won a Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921. Yeah, widely regarded as one of the most influential scientists of all time. His work revolutionised our understanding of space, time, and gravity. And like, that's pretty like, big, isn't it? That's pretty big. Yeah. Did Did you write down? He was a German-born theoretical physicist. So then my next line was, "What on earth is a theoretical physicist?" <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And it it's where 
you've got people who yeah theorize or where you necessarily can't prove something but you think of an outcome you think of what could be the outcome of a situation or you try and put something in in the extremes of a situation and then how would that change or what would happen or what would it mean if you could could change it you know in theory when you can't be an experimental physicist which is where you might actually drop an apple like yeah. Sir Isaac Newton and you watch the apple fall and then watch it bounce and then you make some observations about it it's not so easy um to be making observations when you're just theorizing about stuff yeah it's, it de deals with developing and evolving theory to explain the fundamental nature of the universe and uh I'd read that it, it's like without this idea we would never get new discoveries like without people to just to just go well I wonder what this is or why this is or how that happens uh, like nothing new would come of anything and it yes. was, and turns out he was pretty good at it and unlocked like for everybody else like once once somebody cracks the code everybody else can just run with it yes and, uh, yeah, yeah he came up with some quite important things but I, I think it's that whole thing about where if you're a scientist you might think of somebody somebody in a white lab coat with some test tubes and they're pouring some liquid into the other one and then something happens like yeah. it's not so so much around that is it it's around yeah the just the posturing and thinking about things so in terms of albert einstein as we were saying it wasn't all that long ago that we had to think about this so he was born in 1879 which yeah, I, I thought it could well have been longer than that, but born in 1879 in Germany. I thought it was way longer than that. So I don't think it's a spoiler. We'll get there in a minute. Died in 1955. 1955? Yeah. That, that was nearly about when my dad and mum and dad are around. <laughs> yeah. like, and he, he, he died in 1955 in the USA. And there's some importance about that that will come on to yeah, so a bit later. Born in Germany, and you know, he didn't speak for the first four years of his life, apparently. Yeah. And, and took, took nine years to learn to read as well, apparently. Like, I think obviously just showed maybe his brain worked in a slightly different way. So he, he was born into a middle-class family. They were a Jewish family. His dad was um, like a bed salesman. And then okay. later he ran a, an electrochemical factory and his mum was, she ran the family household. But I think the reason for mentioning this is neither of them were super academic. So it's not like it's been okay. forced on him, you know, about maths or science, whatever it might be in his early years. But it was things just the way that he thought from a very early age sort of shaped what his whole life was. And it's quite an interesting little story that, when he first encountered a compass at the age of five, yeah. he was just mystified that there were some invisible forces that could move the needle around. It's like, why Why is the needle on a compass moving when there's nothing yeah. touching or any, anywhere near it? And that then led to this like lifelong fascination with invisible forces and just trying to think how and why things affect other things that you can't necessarily see them. Yeah, like this inquisitive nature that would that would lead you to just try and solve stuff that seemed unsolvable. He actually wrote in his auto, he wrote some autobiograph autobiographical notes, and he wrote that I can still remember, or at least believe I can remember, that this experience with the compass 
made a deep and lasting impression upon me. Something deeply hidden had to be behind things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He yeah. wrote himself that he thinks he remembers getting this compass and like sparking this sort of a uh, life, if you like. Um, at, the, at the age of 12, he then had a book all about geometry which he absolutely okay. loved and like devoured it apparently. And he used to call it his sacred little book of geometry. And he, you know, he lapped it up when he was only 12 years old, but definitely was excelling in the areas of, of maths um, and physics at that time. But as a student, he, he was good at the, the subjects that he liked. So yeah. he wasn't particularly good at French, you know, it wasn't musical. There are other things. And then he was a little bit, I suppose, petulant where he then wouldn't, push himself in those other areas and he didn't particularly like chemistry so he didn't really push himself at chemistry but he was really good at the things that he really liked to do he was quite strong-minded and as i was reading yeah. about he he got a book when he was 16 years old and in the book the author imagined riding alongside electricity that was traveling inside a telephone wire and okay that, that sort of like sparked off something in in Albert Einstein's mind, which was a thought he then held for the next 10 years or so, which was what would a light beam look like if you could run alongside it at 16 wow. years old? Like you're like thinking in that way, if I could somehow keep up with a beam of light, what would it look like? And just trying to figure things out. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. He, he actually, um, he didn't pass. You were saying about him not enjoying certain lessons. He didn't pass the entrance exam. Uh, one of the universities he went to, did he? No. In the, the first time round. Um, <laughs> no. So, um, in, yeah, so like about that time when he was, I think he was 15, his family ended up moving to Switzerland from Germany. And then he, he actually gave up his German citizenship, didn't he? When he was about 17, I think. Yeah, but it's more so to avoid doing military service, what I read. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair so. Enough. I don't think he wanted to do the, the military service, but then he then, so what, what are we talking about? 1896, I've got this. Yeah. Yeah. He's going into um, going into a polytechnic school in Zurich where he's yeah. then studying physics and maths. And then he graduates in 1900 as a... I don't know. <laughs> oh. Then he graduates 1900 as a maths teacher. My oh, man. did he? <laughs> My man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all this time all this time he's um you know he's doing these like experiments and he's, he, he called them thought experiments he would think something like you were saying that one about like what's the electric doing going down the wire he, he would think things and then try and like we we're saying theoretically trying to work out what what might be the answer yeah wouldn't he yeah he became a swiss national got swiss citizenship in 1901 when he was 22 and then he, he stopped being a teacher, didn't he? He took a job at, at what was it, as a, pa a patent examiner at the Swiss Patent Office. Well, I think partly that was because he couldn't, he couldn't then become an academic. He couldn't then become a teacher. I think he had a little bit of a rebellious personality and the way that he used to skip some lessons and what have you. Professors wouldn't give him like glowing recommendations to say you okay. should then take this person on as being a leading yeah, professor okay. or a leading teacher. So he then ended up yeah, working at the Swiss Patent Office, but it turned out that was a really, really good thing for him. So in 1902, he's working at the Swiss Patent Office. People are sending in these patents and he's then casting his eye over them and then 
um, it's like encouraging his brain to think because people are, yeah. you know, submitting things that in theory don't exist yet or they're coming up with new inventions or whatever it might be. And he found that he was quite good at his day job. So he was able to quickly get through his clerical work at the patent office in in a few hours and then focus his time and energy on his own writings and theories and trying to put together some of his own papers which very shortly this is 1902 it worked right but just in in between there he actually uh well he started seeing a girl who was on his university course i think her name was Mileva marich and uh they apparently and this is rumor right they had an illegitimate child didn't they a girl called Liesel, yeah. How do you say that word, Liesel? But um, you know, why are you saying apparently? Oh, apparently, because no, yeah, sorry, because nobody knows. There's like yeah. next to no evidence. Yes, uh, like they think this girl might have died in childbirth, or perhaps died of is it scarlet fever. Perhaps was given up for adoption because they weren't married at the time, so she was an illegitimate child. Yeah. Um. So and he he never spoke about her ever again, did he? So you, yeah. That, that's why it's left with not knowing um, what the outcome he did, of this girl was. He did in, in like a year later, 1903, he didn't marry this Maleva marriage and they did have a, a legitimate son, his first son called Hans. But then we get to 1905. This is the biggie, right? Yeah, this was the, the biggest year of his scientific life, I would probably say. They call it the, what do they call it? The Annus Mirabilis? Yeah, which means the miracle year. Yeah, we're going to come back to this as a proper thing in just a second. But 1905, he publishes not one. Like most scientists would be happy publish. They publish a paper, didn't they? So they they would write almost like a what do you call it? Like a a, yeah, like a thesis, like the thing you'd write for a PhD. You'd write this big paper about whatever it is you're working on. He not didn't publish one. He published four, and all four of them were Bertie potatoes, weren't they? They were they were big time. <laughs> they, they were groundbreaking. Yeah, is the right word I'd use. Groundbreaking is the is the word that that I kept on reading yeah. about about these papers. So that's nineteen oh five. Getting these these groundbreaking papers. Yeah, he then sort of between nineteen oh five and nineteen what like fifteen it was. He starts working on something else, something more important called the general theory of relativity. And he spends yeah. 10 years sort of taking these papers he, he produced in 1905 and almost building on them. Like, oh, I've got a new idea, actually. What, what if gravity gets involved? And we'll talk about those lately, later. I think it's important saying, so in 1905, which we're saying was his, his breakout year, his miracle year that he had, these four papers, and it revolutionized physics what he did yeah. but at the time he was working in the patent office so he's he's not one of the top yeah. physicists in the world he's not up there you know at the top table of the top mm-hmm. thinkers or the top scientists or whatever so when he initially released these papers like the people poured scorn on them thinking what are these like who's this yeah. guy who's this Who guy are you? with the yeah, yeah like who's this pretender and then they actually looked at them, started to take them serious, and they were like, "Hang on, this guy's onto something here. We need to we need to actually pay attention to this." Yeah, yeah, which they they did. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, like I said, so in the next ten years, he keeps working on them. He actually separ- separates from his wife. 
They'd had a second son in between there. So he had two sons with his wife. They separate. She moves to, to Zurich. But then 1915 comes around and lightning almost strikes twice, right? In what way? Oh, he comes up with another groundbreaking theory. Yeah. Publishes <laughs> something called the general theory of relativity, which is just as earth-shattering as the other previous four. Now, like, like you're saying, but obviously by now, he's a bit more of a big deal. Like they, yeah. people have cottoned on to these other thought, four things he's come up with. Actually, they were legit. So we released something else. Bit of a celebrity, right? Yeah, in the world, he, basically in the world, more so than just in the world of science. Big time, big time. So that from, yeah, 1905 and then started to build from there. And once people started to to realise what his papers said and made sense, he was then travelling around the world and giving lectures. And as you say, it then grew from that and he became you know, even more of a celebrity uh, and known in, in the news. Yeah, this was 1915. 1919, he actually married for the second time. Do you, do you read who he married? Was this his cousin? Yeah. <laughs> I, you do what you want. I don't know what the rules are, but he married his cousin, didn't he? Elsa. Elsa. Married his cousin Elsa. 2021, uh, no, 2021, 1921. 19, yeah, 1921, he won the Nobel Prize, didn't he, for one of his earlier papers. These four papers That's we said right. that came out. Um, like we were saying, took a long time to catch on as, as being legit. You know, he released them in 1905, but didn't win a Nobel Prize for it until 1921. Yeah, a Nobel Prize in physics, as you might have guessed. Um, that's yeah. that's a just a shout out to an older episode. We actually did the Nobel Prize as a, a topic. And not only that, interviewed the CEO, the chair of the Nobel Prize Committee, I believe. Yeah, that was really a good one. To that one. So um, if you're interested yeah. just in how and why the, the Nobel Prize came around in the first place, go and have a little listen to that. Yeah, we're, and we'll talk about um, some of this in a minute. But in the 20s, there were a few other famous scientists, like a couple, you've probably heard of Heisenberg and Schrodinger. They're yep. both quite famous like physicists. They started working on something called quantum mechanics based entirely on Einstein's work, which we'll, we'll get to later. That was in the 20s. And then the 30s happened, and uh, he actually moved to America, didn't he? Yeah, he did for... So there's the pretty big thing happened a little while after this was you had Hitler who was trying to then take over the world and Einstein didn't want to be around. Being Jewish, he decided that he thought it was best that he got out of Germany and he went over to to the USA and started to be a lecturer. Was it at Princeton that he went yeah. over to? Yeah. So he start, started to be a lecturer at Princeton and he was very much a just his general demeanor we've already said that he he renounced his german citizenship so he then didn't do military service he was very much a pacifist wasn't he he didn't like yeah. fighting didn't want people to um to have wars and what have you and he was very much of the the mindset of just trying you know settle things via discussion rather than wars um but yeah so he was he was then at this point over in in the usa and and he carried on being a, a pacifist and a lecturer at Princeton. And he sort of, was it the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of his life? He very much lived that way, didn't he? Yeah, he was in America for about 22 years before he died. Uh, yeah, he became a, a very much a sort of civil rights, uh, anti-war sort of, you know, like that, an, that sort of ambassador person. type thing. Yeah, Liam, yeah, yeah. And, uh... I reckon though, Liam, we've been skirting around it a little bit for the last couple of minutes. I think we actually need to get into some of what he actually did 
And I think what might happen is my microphone might accidentally get turned off for 20 minutes now. And <laughs> 20 minutes. I've got about two minutes of explaining this in me. This is like, I don't know why you assume I can do. I teach maths to 15 year olds. Like, what, I, do you think this is my level? <laughs> so this, this, this is this, this stuff. I, I've done way more research this week than I normally do. <laughs> Looking for way more explanations around his theories. They're absolutely mind-boggling in my head. I can't get my yeah. head around them still. No, it's 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 quite complicated, is it not? And uh, uh, yeah, so let's have a go. We'll have a go. Hopefully, we don't get too many people saying that you know uh, thumbs downs or, or you know what's the opposite of subscribers? The, the exact opposite of that. Unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah, and we unsub click the unsubscribe button. So we'll, we'll see if we can do it justice. We'll see if we can do do this part justice. But okay, yeah, go so, on then. So, so let us know. We said 1905 was the big year. Why was that? Yeah, so what was Einstein? Why was he such a big deal? He released these four papers and then one a bit later on, which we'll get to, all in the same year, all had different impacts. They were all reasons why they all became big deals. So the first paper then, he released in March, it was called On a... I can't read that word. On a heuristic viewpoint concerning the production and transformation of light. Oh, yeah. That oh, sounds good. Well, well, I was right off the tongue. And what, what he proved, or what he, he theorized, I guess, is that when light shines onto an object, that object will release electrons. And it will, it will release energy. The object itself, not the light. And this was really important because this is the basis of quantum mechanics, which is something which maybe we'll tell you what that is in just a second. But yeah, him finding this out, it's called the photoelectric effect, isn't it? That's you want, right. You want, anything you want to try and add? I think you've probably covered it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was revolutionary. And it, the problem was, it was, it was so revolutionary that it wasn't widely accepted for like another actual 20 years before it became a thing. And everyone was like, hold on, this is, this is big time here. This actually affects things. And it was, it was the foundations upon which quantum mechanics yeah. is built. And this is what he actually won his Nobel Prize for. So this is almost like what, what is such a big deal about it as well. Yeah. Um, so quantum mechanics being the branch of mechanics that deals with the mathematical description of the motion and interaction of subatomic particles, courtesy of Collins Dictionary. <laughs> That's what it is. So, so these quantum mechanic calculations that are ridiculous and to do with subatomic particles would not have been possible if Einstein hadn't mentioned this photoelectric effect. He's yeah. only 26, by the way. You know, we're saying at this point in 1905, he's 26 years old. That is next to nothing. He's been out of uni five years and he's already like, doing stuff amazing yeah absolutely amazing how yeah. clever how do you have a brain that does that yeah absolutely so yeah, absolutely he then went on and he then came up with another theory as well which is called the the brownian motion where yeah, the, the, you got the name of the paper in front of you uh no i don't actually okay here we go on the movement of small particles suspended in stationary liquids required by the molecular kinetic theory of heat yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, do you want to, what do you know about Brownian motion or what it was that he noticed? To what it's saying 
there in layman's terms, I believe. So it's it's the result of collisions of particles with other fast moving particles in fluid. So yeah, that's what Brownian motion is, the random motion of these particles suspended in a fluid. And he tried to like look at it and work out if there's a why. Why do they seem to just bongle around like this? And it was important because he noticed that these particles are not necessarily colliding with other particles, but actually atoms and molecules. Now, at this point, no one believed atoms were a thing. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The, the thing that we're all made up of and everything. Yeah. <laughs> right so, well, what, so this is 1905 still. Yeah, scientists at this point were still debating the existence of atoms and molecules. Einstein's looked at this Brownian motion of, of particles in, in a liquid and said, well, perhaps they're bouncing, they must be bouncing off of atoms, which is, which is crazy. Yeah, and you, you can't see it or prove it at this point. Again, this is a, a theoretical thing that he's, he's then undertaking. Yeah, yeah and, and this... And especially with with these that, that we were saying earlier, these these theories, he's coming up with things where he's not necessarily, or to begin with, he's not got the maths to support it. So he's then yeah. almost trying to figure out what the maths and the equations and everything might be to then support what these theories are and make sure that they're they're rock solid, that they stand true in a, all different circumstances. Yeah, yeah. And then this this Brownian motion, this knowledge of atoms, it, it just it, it allowed scientists to like count and observe their behavior during experiments, which they couldn't do until now, which is, it's crazy. Like he invented that as well. So in another one of his papers called, does the inertia of a body depend upon its energy content? There was a little famous equation that he, he came up with. Yep. Namely. E equals MC squared. Yeah, like there are certain parts of science that are just so groundbreaking, everybody knows them. Yeah. And you, you don't even know what they are. You know what I mean? There are, there are certain things, certain mathsy formulas and things that you just, you've heard of and you've got no idea what it is. But oh, it's absolutely so no idea. And I, I didn't even realize that, again, um, not knowing it, but just knowing the equation. So it's a capital E. And then equals yeah. lowercase m, lowercase c, and then squared. So if you C then, is squared. Yes, yeah, C is squared. So if you were to then change the that C to a capital C, it means something completely else mm -hmm. in maths and, and yeah. physics. So it's so yeah, E equals MC squared, which is probably a, an equation. E stands for come on, let's let's see what they stand for, and then we'll see if we can work out what it's actually to do with. Uh, is that to do with energy? Yeah, E is the energy equals. So energy, energy equals mass. Yeah, the mass of something. Or like the, the matter of it. If you say like a planet is made up of a mass or it's made up of the matter. Yeah. Um, and then C is light. Speed of light. C speed is speed of light. of light. Good point. Speed of light squared. So the energy within something is equal to its mass times by the speed of light squared. The speed of light, though, is ridiculously big. It's like 299 million meters per second. It's incredible. So the point, anyway, the point of what this, you texted me earlier in the week, you're going to have to do the heavy lifting on E plus MC squared. I've got no <laughs> idea what this is. <laughs> but this, this is where it then, yeah, but where it starts to make my mind bend a little bit. So 
E equals mc squared. So that's stating that energy and mass are the same thing. It's like, yeah, this okay. is the important. This is the important thing he realized. And FYI, I went to speak to the head of physics today in my school, and I ran this past them. And this, I said that what I'm about to say, and he said, "Yes, this is fine. This is just about the right explanation." I said, "Good, so I'm not getting any more than this." Right. The point is, every object has energy within it, stored within it, getting ready to be used, and the amount of energy that it has within it is equal to its mass times by the speed of light squared, yeah? And Einstein realized that energy and mass are interchangeable, a bit like how ice and water, they are the same thing, but they are two different forms of the same thing. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, like you can does. take the water out of the ice cube. And what Einstein realized is because C squared is an enormous number, right? 299 million squared is absolutely mahoosive. If you times the mass, the amount of mass there is of something by that massive number, you get a huge amount of energy and you can have a very small mass and still get a massive amount of energy out of it, which is where nuclear fusion and nuclear power and all that sort of stuff yep. all came out of this. Yeah. With his thinking and about how yeah. like he, he kickstarted that whole idea and that whole yeah, nuclear fusion being a potential thing, didn't he? Yeah, 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 it's crazy. Um, you know, water can be ice, but it could also be steam. You know, ice is like a mass, but then steam is like an energy. Like, it's that sort of thinking. And yeah, the point being, mass times by 299 million squared. You can have a tiny amount of mass, like a single nuclei. Nuclei? Yeah. I guess it must be nuclei. Yeah, that's right. Uh, times by that number gives you an incredible amount of energy stored within something. And then he realized, you know, you can, you can change the two, which is, which is crazy. And then like, this, this then feeds into that special relativity. Yeah. Then the other big potatoes one. Yeah. So the, that he's saying he's, he then released a paper called on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. And this is all to do with, this became something called the special theory of relativity and this is a bit complicated. This, this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. So th this <laughs> whole idea that he's got, it's sort of describing the behavior of objects moving at constant speeds relative to each other. But then he managed to reveal that time and space are perceived differently by observers in different situations. Hang on. So yeah. that, that's a bit, of a, a bit of a mouthful there. So if I just say it again, so it then makes sense. So this is where he's describing the behavior of moving objects at constant speeds relative to each other. And he then revealed that time and space are perceived differently by observers in different situations. And there's a, trying to come up with a simple way of explaining this. And I think he actually um, had inspiration by people being on a train. He was saying someone traveling on a train and then seeing somebody on a platform and then how that might then be perceived. So you need to imagine you're going on a train and you're going super, super fast. You're going ridiculously fast on this train. And imagine that you then bounce a ball when you're on this train. For you, the ball goes straight down and then comes straight back up in a straight line. Correct. So that is nice and straightforward. 
now imagine if you're the person standing on the platform, but they can sort of see into the train. Imagine there's no side to it. So you're still on the side of the train. This train's whizzing past. As the ball bounces, it doesn't go down in a straight line and straight back up for you. It almost goes down in a bit of a U shape and then comes back up because yep. you're going past so fast. If you're to imagine that the ball, like doing some dots going up the, and down. You're talking about the ball that you're watching on the train. If I watch you bounce a ball That's while it. you are on a train, the ball that I'm watching drops in like a V shape. That's right. Yeah. Because exactly. you're going past me. It doesn't come straight down. It goes down in a V because you're going as you're, as it drops, you're moving. Exactly. And that's that's what is almost like the basis of Einstein's theory of relativity. So I think we've solved it. Is that it? Yeah. Um? Just just about. The, you want to aim for, <laughs> so what you want to do is you want to think about speed and speed is distance divided by time. Right? Now, the speed the ball is dropping is the same in both of these situations. So the speed is distance divided by time. Uh, so distance divided by speed, your distance you travel divided by your speed is the amount of time it takes. But the speed is the same in both of them. The problem, the difference we've got here is you have, you're on the train. So your ball has bounced straight down and straight back up again, like a meter, then a meter. It's like two meters. Yeah. And it's taken My, like a second to do it. Yeah. But when I've, because when I watch you do it, it drops in this V shape, which means to me, the ball has actually traveled further. The distance in a V is, is further than the distance straight down, straight up. So in my perception, my speed equals distance divided by time, or my time is distance divided by speed calculation is different to yours because I've got a different distance. Yes. Our speed's the same. Distance divided by speed is time, but my distance is longer than your distance. What My observed distance is longer than your distance. And what that means is I have a bigger number divided by speed and you have a smaller number divided by speed, which means your time is short and my time is long. But we've both seen the same thing, but it's taken a different amount of time. That's that. That's really key. What you're saying there, that whole thing about time. So, yeah, it's like that, that perception It's taken one second to bounce. But because you're saying that the distance has gone like a U for the person on yeah, the, the side the, watching the, it. Yeah. Compared to the other person, it's as if it's taken longer. Is this where yeah. you get like the films Interstellar and all of those types? Yeah, of it's, where, it's where you get. So this created something called time dilation, which is basically what you're saying. Like time is different for each of us. And the faster you go, the faster you travel, the longer that time takes to me. When I watch. So if you're in a rocket ship and you're not on a plane, you're not on a train. Now you're going bajillions of miles an hour. That V shape becomes really, really long. Think how far, think how long that V would be. It would, come, it would look stupid. It would almost look like a straight line. But it would suddenly, the distance I see your ball travel is now really far. And the distance divided by speed, speed's the same. Speed isn't changing. Yep. The, speed is, the, the speed the ball is dropping isn't changing. So I've got to do tight distance over speed. But you're, you're, it's gone really far. So now the time is mental. Like the time is completely different. And then you end up with this, this theory. Time dilation is where... If I speed up really fast, the clock for me just goes normal. But the clock for you watching me keeps going. <laughs> Does it, anybody else listening now realize why well, I struggled to get my head around it this week? This is really complicated. So, so for example, <laughs> if I was on a spaceship, if I was on a spaceship, right, this is a really cool little idea. If I was on a spaceship and I could fly really, really fast, imagine I flew for six months away from the planet. What, at the speed of light? Again, at the speed of well, light, so. 
close as I could get. Came back again six months later. In my mind and my body, everything about me has got one year older. But on planet Earth, you're observing me. The time is way longer. So when I get back to Earth, everybody on Earth has aged like a thousand years. I don't know what the number is, but an obscene amount of years. Like, basically, I've traveled into the future. <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's so so that, happens, that happens when you travel really fast or if you get really close to lots of gravity. And Einstein recognized this. And this, this relativity theory had far-reaching effects. But he then, we said about the other... The other theory, this was called the special theory of relativity um, because you said it involves a constant speed. He then said, well, what if we put gravity in the mix? Because the problem is when gravity gets involved, things, don't, things accelerate and they slow down and the speed's not constant anymore. So it complicates all the calculations. Yeah, and this is where I think science in general was torn because everything that everyone had known up until this point or for the last few hundred years had been based on Isaac Newton and yeah. what his laws are, Newton's laws. That's what everyone yeah. worked to. And they're like, yeah. this guy's coming out and he's trying to, um, he's trying to unprove those. He's trying to come up with a theory that, that means that Newton's laws weren't correct, which Einstein said he was never trying to do, but it's just, one of those things where we sort of like added to it and come up with this new theory that then people have agreed on. And this is that theory of general relativity and taking that, that initial equals MC squared one, throwing gravity into it. I was trying to come up with a, or trying to see, and you explain this to me really nicely in the week, a way of explaining what this then means. And it's, let me, let me try and get my words right here. So in space, the sun, we've always thought that the sun has had this like invisible bond with Earth that's then keeping it just because of gravity. We thought that we were going around the sun not, because of mm -hmm. gravity was the only yeah, thing. Not just the sun, by the way, uh, like any, any object. Oh, yeah. Gravity yeah. pulls things together. Like the sun has lots of gravity, so it pulls us to it. But we've got more gravity than the moon, so we pull the moon to it. Like, exactly. That's what the belief was that they're connected by this gravitational force that's sort of pulling them together. But then Einstein came up with this theory that there was something called space time, <laughs> and, and, and how how it can then warp. <laughs> so how space can be warped <laughs> to then allow things to be attracted to it in almost like a fourth dimension using time. Yeah, he yeah Einstein had this fourth dimension space time and. It, the way to think of it, imagine a trampoline. If I put a bowling ball in the middle of the trampoline, the, the ball sits in the middle and everything dips, right? Yeah, there's like this big dip in the bottom of the trampoline, like a plug hole almost, I guess. Do we right? say that that is the sun, is it? Just in this example? Yeah. yeah. And then if you dropped another planet or just another ball into the trampoline, what happens? It gets pulled into this dip, doesn't it? Imagine putting a tennis ball also on that trampoline. But... It doesn't even go straight to the sun. It almost rolls around the sun to begin with until it ends up in the sun, right? Yep. So Einstein's idea is that the sun, our sun, bends space and that we on planet Earth are basically being pulled into this dip that it creates within space-time. And that as we're getting pulled into it, we are rotating around the sun at that point. And that, that is... 
well complicated maths and well complicated science but that is what he proposed and that was proved to be true eventually yeah so he was saying that gravitational fields cause distortions in the fabric of space and time that's what yeah. he was he yeah, was saying the bigger the the bigger the object, the more the distortion. So the more, like, put a really heavy object on the middle of a trampoline, way more gets bent. Um, a black hole has so much mass that it pulls everything. It, it bends space-time so much that even light gets pulled into it. Like, everything. Um, yeah, and, and this, that's, that's what he proposed. So and this was in 1915, and it, it yeah. remained really controversial until 1919 and the way that it then helped get proved so again this is just a theory there's no maths like really able to support this so people can't observe this to then think well, people can is... do the maths people yeah. can't do it so even if he even if the maths he's done is right people just couldn't get on board with it because they, they couldn't ca these figures he's working are an astronomical scale like people couldn't even do it so it's not that necessarily he was wrong. It's just it couldn't be proved. Yep. But there was someone who... By anyone other than himself. Someone who believed in him, who thought, I think he's on I think he's onto this. And there was an English astronomer called Arthur Eddington. And he was going to have a look at an eclipse. So where the moon passes in front of the sun. And what he thought is that the conditions could be right to then show how light can be bent by a gravitational force so you imagine you've got the sun you've got the moon that goes in front of it and the way that he proved this is that they knew where certain stars should be in the sky but as the moon went in front of the sun it looked like the stars changed where they were in the sky and that's because the light was being bent at the time and it then managed to prove that there was there was an arc and it tied in with the mass that Einstein had predicted um, for what general relativity would mean that about how much yeah. of an arc there would be. So it's nuts. He he had all of the the maths in place, but there was no way of proving it because it's still theory. And then when they had the possibility to then put it into practice, it then stood the test of time. And that was when it was almost like mind blowing for everybody to then get on board with this. And wow. He's really onto something here. Yeah. So then my next thing was like, so what? Like, how what does all this mean? Like, yeah, you can do all this crazy stuff, but it's so beyond what most people can even comprehend. And people listen and be like, I don't really know what you've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. Like, this has gone over my lots of it's gone over our heads, I think, if we'd be honest. Would you not agree? Uh, yeah. But like this this idea of stuff traveling at different speeds affecting time and and stuff. It's got huge implications on things like anything to do with satellites and GPS. Anytime anything's traveling really fast and there's an effect on time, relativity. So all our GPS systems, they've, they've all got to be used. Any, any high precision measurement of time anywhere yeah. has, to, has to account for all of this. Electron microscopes, particle accelerators, they would not work if this stuff wasn't accounted for. Which is pretty cool, isn't it? Like we yeah. we don't really see it in our day to day lives, but there are massive implications for what Einstein theorized just, and then has been put into practice. Just understanding the universe, being able to look up and know about it. 
and you know we've talked about nasa and the iss and like those things wouldn't happen if they didn't know this stuff yes right yeah but again that's sort of beyond what what we can comprehend i guess and in, in many cases, I know we said this is theory, they weren't able to then prove it for many years later. They didn't have the the wherewithal for the calculations to be in place to then um, actually substantiate what his claims were, which is pretty cool, isn't it? I know you said it about other people we've looked into in the past, along the lines of like Galileo and what have you. It's pretty cool. People coming up with these ideas and then they then get proven further along. Um, like when yeah. we did evolution with Darwin, he came up with a theory, yeah. but they couldn't improve it for, for many, many years later. Yeah, it was, it was about the 60s, in the 60s, when computers could solve calculations and things that then more and more scientists could, could take what um, Einstein had done and then uh, apply it and realise it was all true. You know, when they start noticing things like the first black holes and things, they're then like, well, actually, Einstein said this. All oh, right, OK, now I understand what's going on here. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So we know, so Einstein came up with some super important theories that then proved to be true and has really shaped the way that science and physicists have then used that information going forward. And we, we said earlier that in 1933, shortly before Hitler rose to power, um, that, that Einstein had decided to move to the US and he then went to study in Princeton. Uh, sorry, no, you then went to the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton. Uh, him going there, they obviously knew that he was a super bright guy. He'd come up with all of these theories and plans, and he's come from Germany. And Germany's a bit of a suspicious country at the time because of Hitler. Yep. And yep. so uh, there were a lot of people who were quite interested in him, in particular, the FBI. The FBI were yeah. thinking, Who's this super bright guy who's coming over here, sort of like trying to come up with you know, nuclear fusion or whatever it might be, trying to come up with these these things about atoms and what have you. We need to keep an eye on this guy. And they, they made sure that they did. Yeah, 22 years, apparently. Apparently his file is 1,427 pages, the FBI file on Einstein. Like they, 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 they listened into so many of his calls open loads of his mail. They rummage through his, his rubbish on a regular basis, just hoping to unmask this, you know, this Soviet operative who was then over there, someone spying in the US. But as we know, he was a real pacifist, a real civil rights person, and he absolutely didn't want anything to do with any of that. But yeah, um, one of the big things off the back of that, and actually, actually, I said to some kids at school that I was doing this this week, and a couple of them said, didn't he invent the nuclear bomb? And he had something to do with that, didn't he? And I think it, it, as a character, he's in the film Oppenheimer. Yeah, um, he was friends with Oppenheimer, apparently. He'd, so he'd heard that the Germans at the time were investigating nuclear fusion, sort of based off the back of his, his idea that it was MC squared and that you could take a nuclear, a nuclei and it would have all this energy stored within it. It's all off of the back of this. He's heard that they're working on it. So him and some other scientists, they, they were going to actually email, uh, email, <laughs> not email, they were going to message, um, I think it was someone in Belgium to, to say, uh, you know, this is dangerous. But it ended up, the letter ended up getting to the president of the US and they said, look, Germany are looking into this. You need to be looking into this, essentially. Like, they can't be the only ones doing this. You want to get involved. It was, yeah, Franklin D. D. Roosevelt. 
Yeah, but then, but like you're saying, because the FBI are tracking him, they wouldn't let him have anything to do with it. No. Like he's like one of the best scientists in the world, but they were a bit wary about his German roots. So they said, right, yeah, brilliant, Albert. Yeah, thanks for that. We'll uh, we'll look into that. Uh, leave that with us. They then obviously eventually ended up working out what, how to create a nuclear bomb, and the Germans didn't. No, yeah, the, yeah, the, the Germans didn't figure out how to do it, but the the um, the Americans they bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Einstein felt partly responsible for it. You know, he felt yeah. that his science had contributed to it. And he'd said, he's quoted of saying, if he had known that the Germans would not succeed in producing an atomic bomb, I would never have lifted a finger. As in, he wouldn't have raised the alarm about this to, yeah. to, the, to the president. Yeah. So yeah, so his, his science was then used in a negative way, in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah, and he then, like off the back of that, like spent, like we said, spent the next. This was in the thirties. He dies in the fifty-five. He spent the next sort of twenty years very anti-war, civil rights. You know, uh, almost became a bit of a celebrity on the, you know, touring and, and yeah. talking and and being all against all of this. W wasn't um, he offered to be the the president of Israel or something? <laughs> I read this. Yeah, so. Israel became a state, an official state, according to UN, in 1948. Their first head of state died in 52. And then they offered it to Einstein, him being Jewish and all. And they, they, they're like, would you like to be the second president? And he, he declined the honor. Yeah, didn't fancy it. Not good. But yeah, no. so, so he, he, we are saying that he did die. So he died in April 1955 from... An abdominal aortic aneurysm. And I had to look that up because I didn't know what that was. But apparently it's it's between your, your heart and your tummy, like your a, a abdomen. There's um you've got an artery that, that runs there and it just went wrong, which isn't good. He actually rejected like surgery, didn't he? Or like medicine. He yep. he you know, I've had enough, I'm ready to go, let me go on my own terms, and uh died. One of his conditions that he stated once he had died is that he wanted to be cremated. And so his body then goes off to the pathologist. Now, what's it called when somebody looks looks at a body when you die? Oh, I don't know. Is it a pathologist? <laughs> I can't remember what the where they, where they then have a little look at your body and just check you've died of what you what you sh should have died of, what they think you died of. Um, but before actually taking him to be cremated. The, the pathologist who was working on him called Thomas Harvey, he decided to remove Einstein's brain. Yeah. He thought that it could potentially unlock some secrets, knowing how bright and how great this guy was. What if we take his brain and then try and do some research on it? And over the years, there have been loads of studies that have been, been conducted on his brain since the 1980s. But unfortunately a lot of the work's been discredited or dismissed because what they've been comparing his brain to hasn't been accurately comparable to other brains. And so there, okay. there are some, some thinkings that he did have a bigger parietal lobe, which is the part that's associated with maths and spatial ability. But then again, it's, it's been slightly discredited because they were comparing his brain, not to the similar age people and all sorts. So they, they don't really know. I don't really know if, if his brain was special. Okay, fair enough. You want to know some um, famous quotes of his 
Oh, he is like known for famous quotes, isn't he? Yeah, go here's on. A, here's, a, here's a couple of them. Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Nice. Like that one. That's a good it one. It is not that I'm so smart. It's just I can stay with problems longer. I try and teach kids that at school. They give up too quick. That's a good yeah, mindset, It's not that I'm so smart. It's just I stay with my problems longer. And uh, one of the other ones, the world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who do not do anything about it. Uh, nice. Nice. You mentioned um, at the at the very beginning about the, the famous photo of Einstein. I then did a little bit of digging into that and just okay. a little bit interested in that. And it turns out that picture was taken at Einstein's 72nd birthday party. So yeah. it was in 1951, 14th of March. And we were saying he's quite a celebrity at the time. And he's leaving the party that they were put, putting on for him at, uh, at Princeton. And he just got tired of smiling all the time at photographers because people are following around now. And so he just uh -huh. decided to stick out his tongue in quite a playful way. And the photographer snapped it, someone called Arthur Sass. And it went, you know, as much as it could back then, went viral, that picture. Albert Einstein saw it, really liked it, asked for nine copies. So he then signed nine copies and sent them off to his friends. Um, but it's, yeah, one of those pictures that he's now synonymous for, now sticking his tongue out. One of the most famous pictures, I think, of, of any celebrity. You know, like, like if you show it to people, who's this? Einstein? Yeah. Like, Really, really famous. Really, really famous. Yeah. Um, I like that. Any other little facts or, or information for us? He was named Time Magazine Person of the Century in 1999. Wow. That, is big. Cool, right? um, that is big. Yeah, but no, nothing, nothing, nothing. Have you got a takeaway this week? Yeah, I can leave you with a little two guys, one topic takeaway. Um, so it's just around Einstein's IQ score. Okay, so, really high, right? One of, the, one of the highest ever. So his IQ is around 160. But it's interesting why I'm saying it's around 160. So he never actually took an IQ score test. But based on historical records, academics have estimated that his score to be around 160. So it's not like okay. he's got the, the highest IQ score ever which uh, I thought was quite interesting. Do you know who had the highest IQ score ever? Um, somebody called William James Sidis. Sidis. He was a child prodigy, prodigy, estimated to have an IQ between anywhere between 200 to 300. Uh, he attended Harvard University at 11 years old and graduated at the age of 16. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Isn't the, the average IQ 100? Uh, the so, average American IQ, I think, is like 96 or something. So, yeah, yeah. anything above that is more than average. Mate, what a cool episode. Really what a cool good. thing to learn about. I like that. It's very complicated trying to get our heads around like, just what it is that he actually did and why it was such a big deal. Hopefully, we've given it a decent shot. But if there is any physicists out there and they want to send us a voice note of explaining any of those things in a better way, we would love to do to hear that and to get it on our wrap up episode in a few weeks. Hundred percent. I like I like that whole idea of you're on a train going super fast and there's a bouncing ball. The same thing has happened, but it looks different depending if the, you're bouncing the ball or if you're stood on the side watching the ball being bounced. Yeah, that's which um, which relative, is yeah, really cool relative to you and me. Yeah. 
great episode. Like I said, we would love to hear anybody's thoughts. And if there are any experts out there, please just drop us a voice note or a message and we'll, uh, we'll shout it out in a few weeks in the wrap-up episode. But if you want to get in touch, we're on all of the socials at Two Guys, One Topic. We would love to hear from you. Uh, until then, though, we'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. But get out there and share some Albert Einstein knowledge.